Welcome. Yes, yes, yes. Two motorcycles and misfits. Who? <laughs> special episode. It is special. And do you know why? I do know why. Because I'm in it. <laughs> Everything with you is special. <laughs> special is needs. No, this is another one of our special Emma's History Holes. And who's it for? This is for our Patreon subscribers. We love them. We love you guys. This is our way of thinking thanking you for supporting us by coming up with these little gems. There's so many interesting topics and they're things that you may not have thought that were interesting that you wanted to know anymore. Oh, we make you want to know about them. (laughs) We, we We force our opinions on you. Yeah, this is our way of thanking you. And thank you. So I, this is something I've always thought about and I thought, you know what, who could talk on end and make it interesting? Emma could. So I came to her with this topic. Yes. And um, we're going to make it interesting. Is it about fluffy kittens? Oh, that would be a really mess if it was. But alas, no, because we are a motorbiking podcast and not a fluffy kittens podcast. So I wanted to know more about valves. Oh, valves. That's a great subject. Valves, what of them? There's a lot of them. There's so many different types of valves. And this is kind of what I came at Emma with. I said... So what's up with like desmodromic valves? What does that oh, mean? Oh, we're going to come to all of that. And what's better, more or less valves? Oh, that's I, an also I great question. Bikes like the Honda Sabre or like the GS1100, they had an emblem on the side that said 16 valves. Because there were 16 of them. I, that sounds like a lot of things to adjust to me. Yeah, that, it was quite a lot. But maybe it's better. And you know... What's better, like a shim under bucket or a tappet? Personally, I like the ones that you can just get in there that have the little uh, inspection cover you can remove and yes. adjust it with a wrench. But shouldn't maybe have, that's not as good as shim under bucket. Shouldn't have bought that KLR650 then, <laughs> should ya? Okay, well. So tell us about valves. Well, what I need to do is we need to get into why an engine works in the first place and what an engine is. Um, so here we are. We love motorcycles. That's why you're listening. Um, and so we sit on this thing and we sit astride it, press the button, the engine roars into life and off we go. There's a lot going on under there. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to the basics of why it actually works. So an engine, and it doesn't matter how many cylinders it's got. It doesn't matter how exotic it is. doesn't matter what the name on the side of the gas tank is. It's basically the same thing. It's an air pump. It sucks stuff in. It does stuff to the stuff it sucked in. It blows it out and it turns stuff. Stuff goes up and down. It's an air pump. And valves are an incredibly important part of that. So let's get into actually what valves are. And valves are basically, it's a doorway. Open it. Go through, close it. That's what a valve is. And in the case of an engine, a valve is a means of introducing combustible material into the engine. Then it's a means of exhausting the waste products when that combustible material 
has been combusted. So, let's break that down further. Want to hear something interesting? Of course. Gasoline is not flammable. Oh, that's right. If you take a bucket of gasoline and drop a match in it, what happens? The match goes out. Yes. So, that's going to come as a revelation to a lot of people. Well, that... hang on a minute. But what's flammable is gasoline vapor. And gasoline vapor is the mixture of gasoline with oxygen in the air. When you mix those two together in a certain ratio, and I'm not going to get into the exact ratios because it changes, but for the most part, we'll decide on 15 to 1. And so for every one part of gasoline vapor to 15 parts of air, or actually we can we can talk about gasoline itself. So gasoline, one part, air, 15 parts, that is the magic number. And that becomes a very, very flammable mixture. Now, that's what the carburetor does. It changes liquid gasoline into a mixture of gasoline and air, oxygen, makes it flammable. But we're not talking about carburetors today. We're talking about valves. So, the valves in your engine. You have either an inlet valve or valves and then an exhaust valve. Now, if we talk about the combustion cycle of an engine, it goes suck, squeeze, bang, blow. This is not a way of chatting up your best boyfriend or girlfriend. <laughs> this is actually what's happening in the engine. Suck. The engine is actually drawing in that combustible mixture 15 parts air to one part gasoline into a chamber called the combustion chamber. And it's doing so by use of the piston. Exactly. There's two means of doing it. The first is the piston moving down in the cylinder that's creating a suction. It's also achieved by means of the intake or inlet valve, which is open, which is basically it's opening a passageway from the carburetor to the cylinder so that that combustible material can be drawn in. That's the suck part. When the piston reaches the bottom of its travel, we call that bottom dead center or BDC, the intake valve will close. The piston's going to move up inside the bore, and this is the squeeze part. What it's doing is it's squeezing that combustible material and making it even more flammable because here's a dirty little secret if you take a combustible mixture and put it under pressure it becomes even more flammable then we get the bang part and the bang part is nothing more or less than the spark plug igniting the mixture the mixture is ignited the piston which has been moving up and compressing the material, gets forced back down to the bottom position under great force. And then the final part of the equation is the blow. This is pushing all the spent material out. The piston begins moving back up in it, the cylinder. The exhaust valve opens and it pushes the remaining material 
out of the exhaust pipe, down the exhaust pipe, through the muffler, and out into the atmosphere. That's the complete cycle of the engine. And this is, of course, the cycle of a four-stroke. Four-stroke engine. Now, two-strokes have valves as well, and we'll talk about those a little bit, but they're different kinds of valves. For the purpose of our talk today, I really want to concentrate on four-stroke engines. So you asked me a question about which is more or which is better. What's better, more or less? Well, you've really got to think in terms of the more material you can get into an engine, theoretically, the more powerful that engine's going to be. Now, the cylinder is circular. So what we need to do is we need to find the means of getting the most material into a circular combustion chamber. Now, in the old days, valves, we just had one intake and one exhaust. And so if you think of a large circle, that's your combustion chamber, and then with two smaller circles inside, exhaust valve, intake valve, Intake valves are always a little bit larger than exhaust valves because all engines have inefficiencies through friction, through heat, through noise. So you need to introduce more combustible material than you actually pull out. That's the natural attrition rate in the engine. You're losing power through heat, you're losing power through noise, so you need to bring in more than you put out. So that's why intake valves are a lot larger. Two-valve engines were the norm for a long, long time because that's all they, there was. An English company called Rudge borrowed from aircraft technology in the 1930s. Now, for those of you who've got long memories, you'll remember I actually showed up at Misfits on a Rudge a couple that's of years right. back. Now, that was a very, very early attempt at a multi-valve head. It had two intake valves and two exhaust valves, even though it was a single-cylinder bike. The idea was, by introducing two exhaust valves and two intake valves, you could get more material in the engine and more material out, giving you more power. So what you're saying is, uh, bike's power, we think of it as being limited by the the engine, the cylinder size, which is why we refer to a bike in cc's. Exactly, but, but there's more factors too. Also limited by how much air you can and fuel you can move through that cylinder exactly i'm getting this so one means of introducing more air and fuel is by opening the valve more now that's limited to speed and if you open the valve more that means that the means of opening the valve which is the camshaft has to have a greater lift on it. Now, once you get up to a certain amount of lift, you can't spin any faster than a certain speed. So English bikes, if we go back to the 1960s, English bikes made very, very good power. However, they really... 60 horsepower was pretty much all you could get out of them because they had... Two valves in the engine, 
they had camshafts that had quite a large lift on them and you couldn't spin those engines really much beyond 6000 rpm that was it because of the profile of the camshaft because of the valve springs so you had an engine that would produce good horsepower up to a certain revs and then it would tail off now japanese bikes right around the early 60s japan started bringing bikes to the isle of man and racing them and these were quite small capacity bikes but they revved stratastrophically high You're talking 10,000 rpm 12,000 rpm and they did so by means of doing lots of valves a lot more valves with a lower lift on the camshaft so you could actually spin the thing up more so smaller means lighter weight, which means it can right. move faster. Exactly. Which we know from, I mean, all performance bikes, that's what it's, Well, you know, what's, we, what makes a difference. We get into the old power to weight ratio and you can't escape that. There's somebody sitting next to you at the light and they have 250 horsepower under the hood of their Dodge Charger. Maybe 300, maybe 400, it's tuned up. And you're sitting on a 60, 70 horsepower bike. The light turns green and you're way quicker than them. How can this be? You've only got 70 horsepower and you've just blown the doors off a 300 horsepower Dodge. Well, it's that power to weight ratio. You weigh a lot less overall. That 300 horsepower is dragging a very heavy car along. You're riding a lightweight bike. You can't escape that equation. So the question being, is more or less better? It sounds like more is better for performance, but I have a feeling there's a flip side to this equation. There is a flip side to it. And you, once you introduce more, you've got to watch the weight very, very carefully. Um, there's two factors that go on inside an engine there's reciprocating mass and reciprocating mass is what's moving up and down and then there's rotational mass now rotational mass you have a little bit more leeway with weight because it carries its own inertia reciprocating mass basically moves in one direction very very fast stops dead moves in the other direction very very fast and stops dead this is why Anything that's reciprocating needs to be extremely lightweight. Anything that's rotating can be a little bit heavier. How can we explain this? Well, pistons in bikes move up and down. They're usually made out of a very lightweight aluminium. Crankshafts, which are rotational, are usually made out of steel. Camshafts, which are also rotational, tend to be made out of steel. Now, valves, you can't make valves out of aluminium because aluminium is too soft a metal for the great duress they're under. So usually valves are made out of often plain materials, but the bits that do the work, which is the bit that actually gets opened or shut, have really quite exotic materials. I remember um, buying replacement valves for my CB750. Right. And they were like, 10 or 15 bucks each, nothing. But then when we were working on Douglas's YZ250, those were like $200 for a set. And I'm like, what? 
because they've got a very high magnesium and yes. chromium content in them. And that really is the story of mater valve material. Your CB750, I mean, that engine dates back to 1969, and it's very much a 1969 engine, even though your bike was from the 70s. And it had 1969 technology, the YZ250. Things have moved on a lot since then. So valves are made out of very, very exotic material. Well, let's talk about um, the different ways that they, they're adjustable. Sure. Because we know that valves do go out of spec. They do indeed. And they need to be adjusted. Yes, and they do. And there's different types. As I mentioned, shim under bucket or tappets. But then there's also hydraulic self-adjusting. Hydraulic what? lifters. What? Isn't that amazing? So what's the best? Okay. And in order to answer that question, you have to say, what is the bike for? So let's deal with the easiest one first, hydraulic lifters. Well, why, why not just bolt everything up solidly? Well, the problem is your engine is made out of lots and lots of different metals. And different metals expand and do different things under certain amount of heat. Parts get very, very hot. Other parts get not so hot. Parts are made out of aluminium. Parts are made out of steel. Parts are made out of magnesium. They all expand differently. And so what we need to do is we need to make sure that there's a constant gap between where the valve is opened and the valve itself. And that makes sure that the valve has the ability to close completely. It takes into account all the heat of the engine and the heat of the valve itself, the heat of the fuel and the valve timing, because the valve has to be opened at a very, very specific time and closed at a very specific time. So that's your valve clearance. And that's when we talk about adjusting the valves, no matter whether it's by tap it and screw, by shim or by hydraulic lifter. And you've got to adjust it just right. If it's too loose, the valve will clatter. And we've all heard a bike come down to the Misfits that has that very distinct clack, 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 clack from the top. These are loose valves. You don't want to listen to that nonsense. Conversely, if the valve is too tight, it won't close properly when the engine gets up to operating temperature. If it doesn't close properly, it's not making a good seal when the engine's going squeeze. And when the engine's going squeeze, if you're not getting a complete seal, your engine's not running efficiently. So hydraulic lifters take up that little bit of gap. When the valve gap gets big, there's a a little sliding piston inside what's called a tappet. It takes up the gap. It keeps the noise down to a minimum, but it has that little bit of slush in there that acts as a gap so your valves don't wear, wear out. It's a very efficient system for bikes that have lower performance engines. Yeah, what would be an example of a bike with the Well, hydraulic? I don't want to upset any of our Patreon subscribers, but I think it's fair to say that Harley-Davidson's are designed more for the cruiser style. Mm -hmm. And Harley-Davidson's are a perfect example of an engine that has a very specific range of power. It needs a lot of power off the line. 
they don't rev particularly high because they don't need to. It makes its power low down. It's a low revving engine. It's a very torquey engine. It's a cruiser. And you don't want to hear a lot of clattering coming down from it. So the cam profile is cut lower. It has very, very large valves. That's how it introduces its air fuel. And it's a perfect candidate for having hydraulic lifters. So, but it's less maintenance. Oh, absolutely. If the valves get a bit clackety, 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 change the oil. And then the increased viscosity of the new oil takes up that gap and everything goes quiet again. It's a wonderful thing. I think that they should put those in the XR650R so Nock doesn't have to do his valves every weekend. And you know what? That actually would be a good candidate. The, The XR650R is actually a little high performance for that. The cams are cut quite high on it. But the XR650L, which is the lower lower spec electric start version, is a perfect candidate for hydraulic valves. So let's talk about maintenance. Because do you agree agree with me that this, the valves may be one of the most overlooked maintenance things on a bike that actually uh, changes the the output of the motor. Oh, absolutely. And unfortunately, um, they are very, very often neglected. And neglecting your valves can be quite catastrophic. The The biggest problem with valves in the, in the old days, and when we're going to the old days, we're going to the old days when I was young. Um, we had a very high lead content in fuel, and lead content meant the engine was lubricated. And so... The engine was lubricated and we all thrashed our bikes mercilessly and they were very, very simple bikes. And so the valve clearances got big. When the valve clearance gets big, you get a great warning because you hear that very familiar clattering from the top end. And you know that, well, that weekend, instead of going down the pub and drinking beer with your friends, you're going to get those valve covers off and you're going to adjust your valves. And you adjust the valves and everything goes quiet and off you go again for another six months. Well, the problem is things have moved on since then, and the fuel has got different contents in it. Um, The engines themselves rev very differently. And so to cut a long story short, what we're finding now is that instead of valve clearances get big, they get small. Now, the problem is when valve clearances get small, you don't get any warning because the engine sounds just as sweet as it always did. Once a valve clearance gets small, bad things start happening. Your valves start not closing properly. When your valves start not closing properly, your engine can't complete its proper four cycles. So it starts to lose efficiency. It starts to lose efficiently. Now it gets worse. There are explosions going on actually inside your engine. Suck, squeeze, bang, with the emphasis on bang, and then blow. Now, if your valves aren't closing properly, when that bang happens, the bang should be contained in the combustion chamber. If your valves aren't closing properly, the bang, when it comes, can happen inside the exhaust or worse, inside the intake. I think I know where you're going because I've seen a burnt valve before. Right. Now... Once a valve burns out, it happens very, very quickly. And it can get even worse because if you've got ignited combustible material, 
going backwards through the intake and into the carburation or fuel injection system on a bike. Take a guess what that can lead to. Uh, this is going to be bad, bad news. Often involves the fire engine coming. So <laughs> yeah. all manufacturers have a schedule for adjusting valves. I know it's a pain in the ass, but the manufacturers know their onions. And they also are smart enough to know that if they want to sell bikes, they don't necessarily want people to overcheck their valves. So guess what? If you look in your owner's handbook and it says, look at the valves at 20,000 miles, you'd better look at them. Yeah, so some bikes might be as few as 5,000, some of these performance bikes. Right, exactly. Usually what we find, um, your bike rolls off the production line. There's a service that comes at 600 miles. And in a lot of cases, you actually have to look at the valves at 600 miles. One of my favorites, the uh, DR650, is a perfect example. For the 600-mile service, you absolutely have to look at the valves, simply because everything's bedding it in the engine. After that, it becomes every 10,000 miles. So can anybody adjust valves? Yes and no. Um, the simplest way of adjusting valve is by a lock, nut, and screw. And this is the old-fashioned way. If you have access to a set of feeler blades... And a little bit of skill, yeah, anyone can adjust valves. Now, bikes, are, as they've gotten more sophisticated, Longnan screw has changed and been really overtaken by bucket and shim. Now, you really need your wits about you to do a bucket and shim setup because the valve clearance, which is very specific, is achieved by means of different size shims, which will either sit on top of the bucket like on some Triumphs, or below the bucket. If it sits below the bucket, the only way to get at those shims is to take the cams out. Now, you're getting into kind of quite complex mechanical ability if you're going to take the cams out of your bike. Because remember, this is all timed, and cams have to be reassembled in a very specific spot in order for the valves to open and close at the correct time. It's often overlooked. People do the most magnificent job of adjusting their valves and then put the cams back in wrong. And if the cams go back in wrong, you know, the best case scenario is your bike won't start. The worst case scenario is an open valve makes contact with the top of a piston, it bends, and now you've got to dismantle the engine. Right. So I want to learn more about Ducati, who are very proud of their desmodromic valves. What does that mean exactly? Okay, desmodromic valves are extremely clever. The problem for all manufacturers since the beginning of time is reciprocating mass. We already talked about this. This is up and down movement. And what's often restricted motorcycle manufacturers from getting their engines to rev higher are the springs that traditionally close valves. When the camshaft opens a valve, it's by means of a cam profile, which really looks like an egg. The egg presses down on top of the valve, it opens the valve. As it spins, the valve opens to its maximum, and then it closes by means of a spring. 
The spring adds weight and it adds inefficiency. But it's what we're stuck with. Now, Ducati in the 1940s and 50s developed this wonderful system called the Desmodromic Valve System. And the Desmodromic Valve System meant that the valve was opened traditionally by means of a cam. But it was closed mechanically also by means of an opposing cam. So what you have to try and imagine is the valve itself, which is basically shaped like a bell. There's a little collar and there's a fork that fits around the collar. So the valve is pushed open. And then when it's time for the valve to close, it's physically closed by a fork, pulling the valve up and closing it back into its cylinder head. Um, a lot of manufacturers have gone with that system and they tried it mercedes-benz really made a very very good go of it with their racing engines in the 1950s but they could never perfect it ducati have really perfected it over the years and every ducati you buy now has got des desmodromic valve system it's become as much a part of ducati as ducati itself and it really is an extremely clever system. Its advantage is it's very, very lightweight. And the engines can rev higher because they're not relying on the problems associated with a valve, uh, with a valve spring. It's a very clever system. So would you say that is the best type of system, valve system? Well, for a long time, I would have said yes. In the 1970s, when your Honda rolled off the line, if you wanted a high revving engine, you really needed to buy a Ducati. Well, these days, Japan really makes some fantastic engines. And you can buy a Japanese motorcycle right now that will rev to 12, 13, 14,000 RPM with conventional valve springs. So... Theoretically, I would say, yes, the Ducati system. It's a very efficient system, but with modern materials, you can achieve the same performance with a conventional design. All right, so it sounds like what everybody wants is multiple desmodromic valves made out of titanium. It, yes, if you want complexity, <laughs> you got it right there. That's a very exotic setup. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you very much for explaining valves. I think it's a mystery for a lot of people. People don't want to open up the engine and let the magic smoke out. But valves are something that is important. And in many cases, you can do it yourself. And if you have a bike that's got, say, 20, 30, 40,000, or even less, just by doing the valves, you can put that, that yeah, you punch can, back in you, the motor. You really can put the punch back into it. Um, every single bike on the road has got a service schedule that will include the valve clearance. Your maker's handbook will actually tell you. Now, you might have bought your bike used and not had the advantage of a maker's handbook. Well, we have this wonderful thing called the interwebs. So check on your bike, check on the service schedule. Best case scenario is you check your valves and they're all within specification. My guess is you'll find one or two that are a little tight. And get to them, address them, even if it's sending it to a bike shop to get it done, because your bike will thank you.
I think that that's, uh, I'm going to say that's one of uh, Emma's top tips. If you want to improve performance on your bike, check those valve clearances. Check the valves. Well, thank you very much, Emma. That is a lot of good information. Hopefully people can take this and be a little more informed about what their bike might need. And I think the reason it goes overlooked is because it's such a slow progression of degradation on it. And it's not something you notice, but you may realize your bike that you've had a few years doesn't feel as... You know, it's it's like the aging process. You know, if if I'd have known I was going to feel like this at 56, I'd have taken better care of myself at 18. So... Your bike is losing performance. It's quite natural. It's a natural state of progression. Air filters get dirty. Plugs get a little bit worn. Valves get a little bit tight. But it is so progressive, you really don't notice it. When you bring everything back to spec, it's amazing the difference. I've had people who have had their bike serviced at the shop and come back and give me a hug the next day because the, the, the difference is so dramatic. Awesome. Well, thank you. And thank you to our listeners and for being supporters on Patreon. You guys are the bomb. Exactly. I hope you enjoyed this little mini-sode about valves. And if you have something you would like to know more about, send us an email and let us know. I think uh, Emma will find a way to talk endlessly about Oh, I can talk endlessly <laughs> about anything, darling. Exactly. All right. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you, guys.